Our reading today is from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, beginning with verse 4 through 8, and then 19 through the end of the chapter. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream. Then in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the whole end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws." 
At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're continuing in Daniel, and Daniel chapter 4 is about pride. Historically, Christian theologians have uh, identified particular sins that um, in so many ways are the roots of all the other sins that we experience in our lives and in the world. Popularly, they've been called the seven deadly sins. If you aren't a Christian or haven't been around church for a while, haven't read the Bible, you probably have heard of those. And I think that actually is a helpful category. That phrase isn't in the Bible, but there's a lot of value in understanding how each of these really significant sins occupies our place in our hearts and how it severs uh, our relationship from our father. And the chief of the seven deadly sins historically is pride. My good friend C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity, probably the best chapter in that book, which is called The Great Sin, defines pride like this. Lewis writes, Pride is a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Daniel 4 is about pride. The moral of the story is found in the last verse that Oliver read for us, verse 37. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. What an encouraging line for you this morning as you come to church. I'm sure you're so excited to hear about how God's going to humble you and all of your pride. There's actually good news packed for us into Daniel 4, though. The main character in Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, whom we've read about for the prior three chapters. You could argue that Nebuchadnezzar is the main character of the first third of this entire book. At the end of this chapter, he disappears off of the stage. We don't read anything else about him in the Bible. And and Nebuchadnezzar serves here not just as um, a historical figure for you to learn about. We are not interested in you just learning about more stuff. If, If that's what you want, you can Wikipedia Nebuchadnezzar and not have to show up here. We're interested in you seeing Nebuchadnezzar as a representative example for each of our lives. Someone that we can learn from. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar throughout Daniel so far in his arrogance, in his pride. Remember in chapter 1, he wanted to have these Jewish exiles eat the food from his table so that he would be able to take credit for their rise through the Babylonian governmental ranks. And then in chapter 2, he had had this dream, just like he does in this chapter. And he had demanded that his astrologers and magicians not just interpret the dream, but tell him what the dream was. In chapter 3, we saw his pride very obviously in that massive 90-foot statue he had built of himself overlaid with gold in the middle of the plain before the Babylonian city. But here, 
in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's pride sort of reaches its apex. It, it reaches its height, and Nebuchadnezzar comes to the end of his pride. Uh, he's humbled by the one who's much greater than even he was. So I want to look at this story together. It's a great story in four sections. The warning to pride is first. Second, the root of pride. Third, the judgment of pride. Fourth, the cure. The cure for pride. Warning, root, judgment, cure. The vast majority of the chapter is really a warning. A warning to pride. Uh, The chapter tells us about Nebuchadnezzar's second dream that he's had in the book so far, and about Daniel's interpretation of it. And the dream serves as a warning, a warning to his pride, a warning to my pride, and a warning to your pride. In verse 4, we read Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is probably writing some form of a royal decree uh, about his own story that made it into Daniel as it comes to us in its final form. He tells us in verse 4 that he was at ease in his house, and prospering in his palace. This is the top of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar was insanely powerful. You could make a really strong case that he might be one of the half dozen or dozen most powerful men ever to have walked the face of the earth. And here he's at the pinnacle of his power. Babylon, when he's reigning, stretched all the way from Egypt in the south to Iran in the north, from Syria in the west all the way to Saudi Arabia. It took almost all of the modern-day Middle East along with a little bit of Africa and a little bit of Central Asia. And Nebuchadnezzar was a masterful craftsman and architect. The city of Babylon had flourished under his leadership. He was an incredible statesman, and he was a victorious general. His city, Babylon, and his palace were among the greatest architectural marvels in the ancient world. And so the first thing we need to see about Nebuchadnezzar is this. If there were anyone ever who should have felt secure, who should have felt secure based on what he had accomplished in his life, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar. Um, He has an army. He has city walls to protect him. He has access to everything he could ever want at the fingertips of his hand. And he doesn't ever have to worry about being reelected. He's an absolute monarch. The people don't matter to him. He's going to rule with absolute authority and with absolute power. It makes sense that he's arrogant, doesn't it? It makes sense that he's proud. The world is Nebuchadnezzar's oyster. But, but, what do we read about him? He's haunted by bad dreams. He can't sleep at night. Verse 5, he says, As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. The most powerful man on the planet in 600 BC can't get a good night's rest because he's so anxious and worried by these dreams. This particular dream was of a great cosmic tree who grew so big that its branches stretched all the way to the heavens. That was a very common religious motif in the ancient Near Eastern world. It covers the entire earth, we read in verse 11. And the tree is beautiful, and its fruit gives life to all the animals of the earth, verse 12. But then a watcher, which is an angel, appears and says this massive cosmic tree is going to be chopped down so that only the stump is left. And then notice around verse 15 and 16 how the text changes. You start seeing instead of it, you start reading he. Verse 16, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. So that's his dream. 
And Nebuchadnezzar asks all his wise men and all his magicians to interpret the dream, just like he had done in chapter 2, and they're unable or unwilling to do it. And so lastly, he calls in Daniel. And he tells the dream to Daniel, and Daniel interprets it for him. Now, I think it's very likely that these interpreters weren't unable to interpret this dream. This dream's actually not that hard to figure out. I think they just weren't willing. I mean, who's going to have the guts to tell Nebuchadnezzar, who at the end of chapter 3 had said, if you don't worship God now, I'm going to chop off all your limbs. What a gracious, kind leader. Who's going to tell him this dream is about you losing all your power and becoming like a wild beast in the field? Well, none of his enchanters are going to do it. That would have taken massive amounts of courage. But Daniel, as we've seen, has a lot of courage. He has a lot of faith. And so we read that Daniel, even though he's courageous, verse 19, was dismayed. He was worried for a while. He was troubled and his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel seems to genuinely care about Nebuchadnezzar. He's deeply invested in Babylon. And he says that he hopes this dream won't come true for him, but rather he hopes it comes true for your enemies, he says. But then he interprets the dream for his king courageously, nonetheless. And he says in verse 22, you, O king, you are the tree. And if that had been all the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure, would have been happy. You're daggum right, I'm the tree. I'm the center of the universe, the axis on which this world turns. But that's not all of the dream. He says, you're going to be chopped down in your strength by the Most High, and you're going to be driven away like an animal from men, verse 25. Why is this going to happen? Daniel says, verse 26, so that you know that heaven rules. And then Daniel preaches the gospel to Nebuchadnezzar. He preaches repentance and faith. In verse 27, he says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. It's a big, huge warning sign with flashing red lights for you and for me to hear this morning. How does Nebuchadnezzar's story instruct us 2,600 plus years later? Like all good stories, this story invites us to reflect on our own lives. This story is not inviting you to think about how proud the other people in your life are. It's inviting you to think about your life, about your heart, about your pride. Nebuchadnezzar is being warned about his pride through this dream and through Daniel's interpretation. And so God, through Daniel, God, through the Holy Spirit, warns me and warns you this morning, right now, against pride as well. So the question for you then is, are you listening? Are you listening? And maybe another question, are you haunted by bad dreams? Maybe not literally, but maybe literally. Even when things are going great for you, are you anxious and troubled, unable to rest securely? And if so, what might God be trying to teach you? Is he warning you, do you think, about your pretended self-sufficiency, about your own propensity to be self-reliant, about your own pride? And, And who are the Daniels in your life that you should be listening to? Maybe a Daniel brought you here today just so you could hear that there's a king in heaven whose works are right and whose ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
You see, Romans chapter 2 tells us that it's God's kindness. It's God's kindness that warns us. It's God's kindness that's intended to lead us into repentance. God warns us out of the overflow of his loving and kind heart for us. Not because he's against us, but rather because he's for us. And so the question is, are you listening? Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't listen. At least not at first. Let's look at that next. We see the warning of pride. Second, the root of pride. Verse 28 tells us, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. But notice verse 29, it doesn't happen right away. It's after a year. At the end of 12 months, we can imagine that, can't we? Put yourselves in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. Perhaps initially when he heard Daniel interpret this dream, he's terrified. And maybe he makes some initial changes. Like perhaps we might make initial changes if we get a bad health diagnosis or if our spouses have a hard conversation with us. Maybe he made some life hacks. But eventually, the pride of his life seeped back into his heart. And he forgot Daniel's warning. And he went about his life thinking, well, maybe it was just, maybe Daniel just missed. He's one for two now in dream interpretation. And he went about his business ruling the known galaxy. But God doesn't forget. God keeps his promises. Look what happens. Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof of his royal palace, which was common in that day because the roofs of the biggest buildings were flat. And he says in verse 30, look at this. This is great Babylon. My city. I've built it by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Now, Babylon is great. Uh, relative to global population, it was much, much bigger than any city of the world today. It contained two of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The hanging gardens of Babylon were the first, which Nebuchadnezzar himself was the architect of, which meant that basically Babylon was a massive urban metropolis that was also really green. And the second wonder were the walls of the city, which were wide enough for two four-horse chariots to race down right next to each other. Babylon's an amazing place. And so Nebuchadnezzar looks out upon his city at the height of his rule, having conquered Egypt, having conquered Assyria, and he beams with pride. And you see the roots of pride, the root of pride in what he says. Verse 30, did you notice all the first person pronouns there? He says, I have built this by my mighty power for the glory of whose majesty? Nebuchadnezzar's majesty, my majesty. What is pride rooted in? Pride is rooted in nothing less than the desire of our hearts to occupy God's throne. Than the desire of our hearts to kind of shove God off of his place at the center of the universe, ruling and reigning and sitting there ourselves. C.S. Lewis was right. Pride is the quintessential anti-God state of mind. I am central. Pride says, I am the master and commander. I did it my way, channeling Sinatra. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've, do what I've done. P pride doesn't allow us to see anyone else because we're too busy looking at ourselves. Pride's rooted in an obsession with self. Some of you I know are familiar with uh, Brian Regan. He's a comedian and uh, he's got a funny bit called the me monster. You guys know the me monster. I'm about to butcher this. So go YouTube me monster 
after the sermon and watch the clip. It's about four minutes. Uh, Regan tells a story about sitting at a dinner party and uh, people are talking, but there's one guy at the table that just won't shut up. He won't stop talking about himself. And the reason it's so funny is because we've all had similar experiences. And because this guy won't stop talking about himself, Regan decides he's going to throw in a quick story. And so he tells a story about when he had two of his impacted wisdom teeth removed. But it was only two. So as soon as he said, I had two wisdom teeth removed, the meme monster said, oh, that's nothing. I've had four wisdom teeth removed. And Regan's like, of course you have. And then he goes on talking about all his travels, all his adventures, all his amazing stories. And Regan concludes the bit by saying, there are only 12 people in the history of the world who are completely unaffected by the meme monster. And it's the 12 people who've walked on the face of the moon. Because they can sit back and listen to the guy brag about where he's been and where he's traveled and how powerful he is and he's Learjet. And then they could say, that's nothing. I've walked on the moon. But it's only them. Everyone else can't stand to be around the me monster. You've got to go watch it. Really funny. The point is, pride. Y'all aren't laughing enough at the me monster. I'm about to put it up here. Pride makes me monsters of, of all of us. That's what pride does. So the Holy Spirit asked through the text, can you see the pride in your life? I know you can see the pride in your spouse's life. I'm not asking that. Can you see the pride in your life? It's difficult to see. Pride is like carbon monoxide. The carbon monoxide of sin. It's a silent killer. C.S. Lewis says, there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular And no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Do arrogant people drive you crazy? Do you want to know why? It's because you're arrogant. Do proud people bother you? Do you want to know why? It's because they're occupying the center of attention that you so desperately want. Where's pride in your heart? Where's pride in your life? You know, pride can take many forms. There's two major forms. The one we're more familiar with is the superiority form of pride, right? The superiority form of pride is, is, as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, inherently competitive. It's always comparing self with someone else. And so if you find yourself regularly comparing yourself to others and how much money you make and how good you look and how good of an athlete you are and how great your grades have been and silently critiquing them and finding ways in which they come up short or don't meet your standards, you're proud. But there's also the flip side. There's the inferiority form of pride, which is much more subtle. If you find yourself regularly thinking, I can never be as good as that person or as accomplished as that person or as beautiful as that person or as successful as that person or as charming as that person. And you find yourself feeling jealous or bitter or experiencing a lot of self-loathing. Then you're infected with the inferiority strain of pride. You see, you're still ruthlessly absorbed in yourself. You're still constantly comparing yourself to others and always funneling everything through the lens of self, but you find yourself coming up short rather than coming up on top. Either way, it's pride. And the scriptures say repeatedly, repeatedly, God casts down the proud. God casts down the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. The judgment of pride is third. Look in verse 31. Nebuchadnezzar's time is up. It took a year. 
But as soon as he says the words about the glory of his majesty, we read, a voice speaks from heaven while the words were still in the king's mouth. And everything that the dream foretold happened to Nebuchadnezzar for seven periods of time. No one really knows what that means. It's probably seven months or seven seasons, which is like a year and a half-ish. In San Antonio, that's like seven years because we have one season, right? Um, For a long time, he wandered around like an animal. He, he He went nuts. Now, this could have been like a physiological mental illness. Uh, We're not sure exactly, but what we do know is that it came as an act of divine judgment. So so what's going on with this? That's a weird judgment, is it not? Why would God do precisely this to the greatest ruler in the history of the world to that point? I think God is showing Nebuchadnezzar, and God is showing us what pride does to us. He's showing Nebuchadnezzar, yes, you're not really in control. You're not really the sinner. But furthermore, pride at its very core defaces. It defaces your humanity. Pride is going to make you miserable because you're so self-absorbed that you're going to be by yourself wandering around like a lunatic. Because Nebuchadnezzar insisted on being more than what God made him to be, for a time God made him less than he made him to be. One commentator writes this, a man who thinks he is a God becomes a beast to learn that he's only a human being. So God goes to great lengths here with Neb, uh, an extreme example to show us what pride does to all of our hearts. It dehumanizes us. It it takes away our ability to empathize, for example, with other humans. It, It destroys us. What, Nebuchadnezzar is, what God is doing is showing Nebuchadnezzar the natural consequences of pride. You parents know about that, do you not? If you're a good parent, and I know so many of you are wonderful parents, one of the ways we discipline and love our children is by allowing them to experience negative consequences for their own actions. So if your child lies, you will say to your child, listen, you're not going to have any friends if you continue to lie. Uh, you're going to be isolated. Your life's going to be a mess. And because we can't trust you, Because you lied, you're not going to be able to go outside and play. You're not going to be able to go to the park. You can't play video games with your friends today because we can't trust what you say. We're allowing them to experience a little bit of the negative consequences of what would be much, much worse if they continue down this path. And that's exactly what God's doing with Nebuchadnezzar. God's saying, I'm going to save you from the eternal natural consequences of what's happening to you by showing you how dehumanizing pride is. I'm going to really turn you into an animal for a time to show you the consequences of your self-centeredness. Pride is a cancer that just devours you from the inside out. Now, maybe today, maybe God, God is showing you some of the natural consequences of your own pride, of your own self-centeredness. Maybe, just as an example, maybe you've had a difficult time in some relationships in your life recently. Uh, Maybe there's a lot of tension between you and someone else. And and to you, when you think about that relationship, it's clear as daylight what the problems are and how this other person has contributed to the tensions. You would probably not say I'm blameless, but what's really crystal clear to you is the other person's problems and the friction of the relationship and the hurt of the relationship just continues to be painful for you. Maybe what the Holy Spirit wants to show you today through Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's story is that God's giving you a natural consequence to show you what you haven't yet been able to see. 
what you and your pride have contributed to the breakdown taking place in this relationship. Maybe um, you're upset that things aren't going well for you at work. Maybe you didn't get the promotion that you wanted to get. Maybe you're not growing your client base like you suspected you would. And your temptation is to find blame somewhere else. And maybe there are legitimate excuses that you can make. Maybe there's all kinds of reasons why things aren't going so well. But maybe God, maybe God is showing you your pride by preventing you from flourishing in your job. Maybe he's asking you in that to humble yourself, to look to him to provide and to stop looking at your instincts, at your business acumen, at your resume. You see, God does this to us because he loves us. God in his love will often lead us into some of the consequences of our pride because otherwise we would remain blind to our pride and it would continue to devour us. God's judgment in temporal ways in your life are not coming out of his wrath. They're coming out of his grace because he's a good father. And so you can ask the Holy Spirit right now and even this morning to make it known to you, to help you know, to give you spiritual insight to see the areas in your life where God is showing you where your own pride is the constraint holding you back from full flourishing. And then you can ask him to give you humility. The judgment of God is intended to lead you to repentance. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He experiences the judgment of his pride. But thankfully, as is always the case with our father, judgment's not the last word. It wasn't the last word for Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not the last word for you, and it's not the last word for me. So let's look at the last thing, the cure. The cure for pride. The end of the chapter tells us, Nebuchadnezzar goes back to what he was. And in fact, he, he gets even more powerful, we read. So what happened? What changes Nebuchadnezzar? What is it that humbles him? Here's what it is. It's a recognition that only God holds the center. Only God is really in charge. Only God is worthy of what he says of himself, Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 30. Only God's worthy of glory. Only God's worthy of praise. Only God's worthy of honor. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that even though he's great, I mean, he is a great king, no question. He's utterly dependent. He is just as dependent as the poorest homeless person in the gutter of Babylon on the king of heaven. We see that in the bookends of the chapter. Verse 3, the very beginning of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar says this, How great are your signs, God! How many are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And then at the end, verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar praises God in doxology. So how does he get to that point? How does he go from an animal wandering in the fields, eating grass and licking dirt to praising the almighty king of heaven? The key's in verse 34. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar tells us. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now the way the Hebrew language works is that bodily posture is always a clue to the meaning of what's happening. So what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He lifted his eyes towards heaven. For the first time, Nebuchadnezzar 
looks at someone other than himself. For the first time, Nebuchadnezzar looks up and not within. That's a way of saying that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that his provision comes from the Lord. He recognized that all that he has is a gift. Nebuchadnezzar had been trying to claim for himself what is rightly God's. Tim Keller puts it this way. He writes, pride claims to be the author of that which is purely a gift. Pride claims to be the author of that which is purely a gift. That's why you are, I know some of you are artists. Laura's a wonderful artist. She paints. Some of you others write. You make things with your hands and you love your work. You're proud of your work. So when someone steals your work or claims that your work is their work, it's highly offensive. Plagiarism, right? That's what pride does to God. Pride is like cosmic plagiarism. It's claiming to be the author of that which is purely a gift. Nebuchadnezzar finally lifts his eyes up. And so the Holy Spirit asks us, have you lifted your eyes to heaven? Have you recognized both God's greatness and your dependence, whether you're a king or whether you're a pauper? Let me close with just one more thing here, okay? God God is not asking you to recognize his greatness and his sovereignty and his power just so that you will know your place in the world (laughs) and be afraid of him. God's asking you to recognize his greatness and to humble yourself so that you will love him. That's what makes the Christian story so utterly unique. And I think this is what Nebuchadnezzar finally realized God is so great that he is worthy not just of our obedience and of our fealty, but of our love, of our affection. And we see that God really shows us his greatness ultimately in the great irony of history. God shows his greatness in becoming humble. Jesus shows us what God is really like. Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word of God, the exact representation of his being. If you want to understand God, look at Jesus. What was Jesus like? Jesus is the anti-Nebuchadnezzar, and he is the anti-proud person. Every proud person, Nebuchadnezzar and Luke and you, all are just men or women who want to be God. Jesus was and is God and made himself one of us. And listen, Jesus didn't come as a king, at least not externally, and at least not the first time. Jesus came showing us his greatness via being humble. Jesus came as a servant and as a sacrifice. Jesus was was willing to have his humanity defaced on the cross in the place of proud sinners, so that our humanity can be restored from what pride does to us. Jesus was willing to suffer the consequences of our pride in his humility. And so the greatness of God is most clearly seen in the upside-down way of the kingdom of God, in the service, the foot-washing, sacrificial service of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. When you look to heaven, what do you see? Do you see a God who just wants to humble you and prove to you that he's in charge and you're not? Go back to your hole, you little worm. Or do you see a God who loves you? The first will never be enough to cure you of pride. 
It might cause you to have a few life hacks and to change things for a time being, but only when you see a God, only when you see a God who loves you so much that he became humble to pay the cost of your pride, can you look to heaven and have your pride and for that matter, any other sin cured? It's the love of God, you see. The love of God seen in the humble work of Jesus that is the only real antidote to our self-centeredness and to all of our other issues. Nebuchadnezzar saw it. Do you see it? Let's pray.